For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Don't adjust your cameras. I'm in a sepia tone tonight, but we'll go into Technicolor in a few moments. Who or what are you celebrating today? I believe that each and every day is to be celebrated. And this is a day that I'm really celebrating because I have a guest on my show, and I know he's going to nod in the background when I say this. I have been trying to get him on this show for months and months and months. He is one of the busiest men I know. Uh, this past summer, as those of you who follow me know, I devoted the entire month of June uh, to the 100th uh, anniversary of Judy Garland's birth. Uh, and I tried to get Sean Barrett on the show at that time, but alas, he was just too busy prepping for the Land of Oz to reopen. Yes, there is a Land of Oz. And I wanna talk about that for a moment. When I was a kid, I grew up in Conway, South Carolina, and I had an uncle who used to live in Charlotte, North Carolina, him and uh, Uncle Parmalee and Aunt Virginia. And uh, every autumn, we would go up to their home in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then we would take the trek uh, up to Tweetsie Railroad. And this was something that we used to do every year. And then... Uh, in the early 70s, these commercials began to air uh, on our, our local affiliates uh, talking about the new Land of Oz that opened in North Carolina. And I was so excited. It was very near Tweetsie. So I begged and begged and begged my parents to take me there. We finally did make it there. And as we made our way to the top of uh, Beach Mountain in Banner Elk, North Carolina, as we were going around and around and around, it seemed like forever, I just could not wait to get there. We get to the top of the mountain only to find out that they were closed that day for renovation. But tonight we're going to talk about the history, we're going to talk about what's been going on, and we're going to be talking about the incredible work uh, of Sean. And I'm going to put myself in color while I'm waiting for you to speak. First of all, Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks and for I'm having me. Who or what are you celebrating today besides the fact that you just had a very successful, was it three weeks in the Land of Oz? It was. We were open for three weeks. It was our most successful um, year to date. So I guess I'll celebrate that. I'm also celebrating being back in New York and, you know, I got to click my heels and come back home. So I'm happy to be back. Now, I had no idea that you had a place here in New York all this time. Yes. You're a North Carolina guy. I Well, I'm from New Jersey. So I go, you know, I moved to New York in college and I go to North Carolina for the event. Now, interesting. Uh, uh, one of my musical directors was just booked to play for you. And that's Mark Hartman. I, I love Mark. He and I worked on Silence the Musical way back, like, I guess it's almost 10 years ago now. So I was, I was a wee little lad, but he always told me that he went to Land of Oz when he was a kid. And then in 2020, he was in the area visiting his parents. And I was down there because we were, um, we were cleaning up the park during COVID. And he came up and he said he wanted to musically direct it. And this year it just kind of, it worked out. So it was kind of fun to get him back involved or to work with him again, to be honest, and to get him involved. 
So your background is in the business. You are actually a show business kid. Am I correct? To a point, yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in film and TV and theater, and I did theater through high school and college and went to school for film and TV, and I always, like, hopped back and forth a bit. But after college, I started to do film work and then somehow got into theater and did that for quite a few years, and now here I am. So... I know that I'm older than you, but I grew up at a time where there were three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And between NBC and CBS, The Wizard of Oz was an annual showing. Uh, yes. If you missed it, uh, you missed it. I did. I uh, did. But my annual thing was um, Autumn and Oz. You used to go to Autumn and Oz prior to... But, I mean, you're as a kid, how did you first get... Uh, interested in The Wizard of Oz. I'm assuming it's through the uh, uh, 1939 MGM film. Am I oh, right of course. Wrong? No, it was totally a 39 film. I mean, you, we're going to go down this rabbit hole if you really want to. But yes, I was, that's, that's what tonight's about. I was a um, a kid when the 50th anniversary in 1989 happened. And at that time, Wizard of Oz was everywhere. Toys R Us had an aisle of toys. The VHS, uh, VHS was released for a limited edition, supposedly. And so my mom bought the movie and I watched it and it kind of, that, that was the end of it. And so we started buying all the toys every week and doing that kind of a thing. And so it slowly grew as a, um, a collection almost. So I collected from the time I was three um, and I still do now, not to the same extent that I did, but just over the years, it was, you know, everybody knew me for Wizard of Oz. I was fortunate growing up that in school, nobody made fun of me. They were like, oh, there's Sean with his Dorothy doll running around type of deal. And it just kind of, I was, um, my parents loved it. They supported it and stuff. So it kind of has always been a part of me. Well, I want to go back for a moment. I mean, you mentioned the 50th anniversary uh, of The Wizard of Oz. Where were you living at that time? New Jersey. Um, now, did you get to Macy's department store when they did the entire store uh, celebrating know. Oz? I, I know all about it for sure. Um, I did not because when that happened, it was about three. So I don't think my mom even knew that it was happening but you know between i missed that i missed the mgm grand display at the hotel in vegas and stuff but i'm you, very you three years it. old we can end the interview right there <laughs> <laughs> no i was living in new york and i was like a kid i went to macy's and the entire store uh was devoted to that um but you know i remember and i'm gonna there are several people that are watching the show who are from my age group i know uh who will remember then it was the annual showing um and uh singer sewing machines uh also uh they sponsored it a few years with debbie reynolds uh yeah. introducing it and i know that debbie reynolds was at the ribbon cutting ceremony when the land of oz originally opened yeah she was there with carrie fisher so um, with that, when the park, when they started building the park and everything around the same time, MGM was like, they were liquidating their um, back lots. And so that's when they were selling all of the, the costumes and the props and the sets and everything. And so they sent representatives out from Land of Oz to, they wanted the ruby slippers and they did not get the ruby slippers. They were outbid by one bid and it was, it's the pair that's currently in the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. And Debbie Reynolds was outbidding them on other Wizard of Oz pieces. And finally, the person, the representative went up to Debbie, or Debbie Reynolds went up to the representative actually. I was like, what are you doing? Do you know who I am type of deal? And they explained that they were doing the Land of Oz theme park. And then they decided to go in on all the pieces together. 
So that's how she got pulled down to Beach Mountain, North Carolina. Well, you know, the funny thing, I interviewed Debbie Reynolds just before uh, on the eve of her last auction and when she had to sell off everything. And this was one of the saddest interviews that I've ever done in my life because she really had such a love for old Hollywood and she truly wanted to preserve it. And it's a shame that in her lifetime, now we have the Academy Museum, uh, which has, uh, I think, some of the artifacts in the movie. Uh, but she truly wanted an MGM, uh, you know, uh, museum to celebrate all of these film items. She did get the famous Arabian shoes. And those of you who are big Oz aficionados, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I have my own pair of ruby slippers, and here they are. Very nice. Yes, and they came from North Carolina. Do you know who made them? Jack Townsend. That's Jack Townsend. There you and go. Also, um, and then last week, uh, one of my friends, uh, fans, colleagues, sent me a pair of these baby ruby slipper Converse shoes. Yeah, I love those. I want those in adult size. I want them in adult size. I mean, everybody's saying they can't wait to see me wear them. And I go through the size of a baby, I mean, for a baby. Um, so you always had this love of Oz. Um, I, how did you end up becoming the artistic director of the Land of Oz theme park? Yeah, I ask myself that a lot sometimes. <laughs> Not in like a bad way. I actually, I went to Oz as a visitor when I was younger. I found out about it by chance. And they were just starting the Autumn and Oz Festival. I think they were only in year like one or two. And my mom brought me down and I was a part of the International Wizard of Oz Club at that time. And I was the only person who was going to Autumn and Oz. And so Bill Stillman, who wrote a ton of books on Wizard of Oz, he was the editor of the Bound Bugle, which is their magazine. And he said, well, you're the only one who's going down. Do you want to write a history on Land of Oz? Probably not expecting much because I think it was 12 or 13 but I took it very seriously and I have family in the area. So my dad drove me down for the summer and we went up and I was interviewing a bunch of people. And I had met the woman who was running Autumn and Oz at the time. And she said, if you ever want to be a character, you know, just let me know and you can come down and be a character. And for me, I, um, I was just out of eighth grade and I, we, the school play that year was Wizard of Oz and I wanted to be the scarecrow. I got cast as the Tin Man. And I was like, well, here's my chance to be the scarecrow. So she invited me to go down. So every year from sophomore year of high school through my late 20s, I went, I played the scarecrow. And then after you do that for a very long period of time, you kind of are just ready for the next thing. And one thing led to another. And I met the, the owners and they, one was based in New York city. And I kind of was like, you guys have something and, I don't know if you know what you really have there and you could do this, this and this with the park and this with the event. And, but like, good luck with it was kind of my, like, I just was like, I'm done. We're good. And somehow here I am. <laughs> so It's incredible. I want to go back a little bit with the history because I remember, and I reached out to you this morning because I remember these commercials that they used mm -hmm. to uh, show. And have you ever seen them? No, and actually, I, I've obviously heard about them, and clearly they would have had commercials, but we, there's nothing that I or the park currently have that has any of the commercials on it, because when the park closed, everything, there was the fire in 75, which we can dive into, 
and there after the park closed, everything kind of just was either trashed or it was thrown into storage. And I'm sure there's some box somewhere that has the original prints of these commercials, but I have not seen them. Well, the interesting that each commercial um, would showcase a different character from Oz and very similar to the way the book is written. You know, yeah. uh, for those who don't know, uh, in the Wizard of Oz, the book, each of the characters goes individually to see the Wizard of Oz. And each time they go in, he presents himself in a different incarnation. So they would all, I mean, all of the commercials would have uh, the famous Oz head, as we know it, mm -hmm. uh, but there would be one with Dorothy, one with the Scarecrow, one with the Lion, and so on. And But what was interesting about those costumes, and I want to talk to you about this, uh, is originally when they opened, uh, because of copyrights and everything, they were not able to replicate the original costumes. So the costumes um, looked like a strange mixture of MGM to some degree, but very far off, uh, and the images from the book. Um, now, as I look at the website and everything, which is an incredible website, by the way, uh, as I look at everything now, it seems as if everything is shifted to give us an exact replication for the movie. Yeah, I mean, we pay homage to a lot of the 70s things. I mean, the thing with the 70s is they they claim, at least, that they never wanted to do a carbon copy of the film. Um, I think what really happened was they were not granted the likenesses or the rights because that's when Wizard of Oz was really kind of picking up in terms of the annual showings and everything, you know, or gaining traction and well were, this is also around i mean it was just a year or so after judy garland after judy died yeah so there was, they, go ahead i'm sorry no no you're fine um so there there's a mix of that but i think a lot of it too was jack pentes who designed the park he was very much about creating his own stylized version of the wizard of oz and he designed everything from a child's perspective and a huge show at the time was H.R. Puff and stuff. And so when you look at the old images, it, they kind of go a little bit closer to that kind of design concept than it does. Cinemony Croft. And so they, the original characters have these huge mascot heads and the mouths moved and everything. And you look at them and they're creepy. They're creepy. I love them because it's the history of the park and they're very yeah. of their time. You know, Dorothy's running around in like a little mini skirt thing and knee-high socks and she's very like Marsha Brady could have been her sister type of deal you know I think he very much pulled from what was very popular at the time. Now as I said in my introduction this was very close to Tweetsie Railroad mm -hmm. uh, I know that my friend Sherry Callahan is watching here from uh, Myrtle Beach North Carolina so mm -hmm. I'm sure that I'm going to bring up some memories of hers or she may have been there but we used to go to Tweetsie Railroad um, and uh, it wasn't that far from there uh, Tweetsie Railroad was the first big theme park in North Carolina. And then when the Land of Oz came along, um, can you talk a little bit about the history of how this came about? Because I know that Ray Bolger was also involved in some of the planning stages and everything, how it all came to be originally. Right. And why, why there's a Land of Oz in North Carolina, not Kansas? Yes. yes. Um, so basically Grover Robbins, who built Tweetsie Railroad, saw Western North Carolina as a huge tourist destination and had not been built up that way. And so he built Tweetsie Railroad in the late 50s. It was a huge, huge success. And by the mid or 60s, excuse me, he wanted to build up Beach Mountain. They had just built a ski resort there. He wanted to utilize the land during the summer months. 
didn't really know what to do with it. So he brought up uh, Jack Pentes, who helped him redesign aspects of Tweetsy in the early 60s. And Jack went up and he saw the trees and the grass and said that it looked like the, the Land of Oz. It looked like everything that he thought of from the books. It reminded him of the movie. And so Grover said, okay, it's Land of Oz. Let's go. And that's pretty much it. The guy who built Tweetsie built Land of Oz. Unfortunately, he actually passed away a couple months before the park opened. So that was kind of the beginning of, not the end, but it was the beginning of just some oddities and how things were managed through the company because he was not overseeing it anymore. But they were developing Beach Mountain to be a huge tourist destination to where you were supposed to originally park at the bottom of the mountain. Right. You you would get a monorail up to the top and there would be, you know, there was vacation homes. There was a ski resort during the winter and there was Land of Oz during the summer. And you were only going to be able to get everywhere by monorail. That never happened, obviously. But it's a fun concept to think about that they were trying to do in the mountains of North Carolina. Well, did you ever go to Tweetsie? I have, I have. It's still open. A lot of our cast comes from Tweetsie. It's actually a cool um, theme park that you kind of feel like you step back in time a little bit. But for me, it's fun because I kind of get an idea of what the quality of Land of Oz was back when it was in operation. Now, I'm going to ask a question because, you know, and anyone, I don't want anyone to be offended or anything by this question I'm about to ask. Because it's, I used to go to Tweetsie as a child. Um, so, um one of the things that I remember with Tweetsie were like the ambushing of the train with the Indians and everything, which gave me nightmares for <laughs> years after that. Is that still a part of it or has it become more PC as time has moved on? They're very uh, consciously PC is what I will say. So there are the live shows and everything and that all still happens and you still have the cowboys and stuff, but you do not get ambushed by uh, Native Americans anymore. No, PC. no, it has to be PC. I mean, I was I was wondering about that because it was something that gave me nightmares as a kid. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, that one day that we went up to, it was such a, a long trek to get to the top. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I remember my ears popping so much up there, but, but it was so gorgeous up there because we were there, of course, in the uh, in fall, probably still while you do your autumn in Oz. The leaves and everything are... Mm-hmm. Do you base those weeks on the peak season of the leaves changing as well? So we, the event itself used to be one day in October. And originally it was to coincide with the leaves changing, but also to coincide with um, the homecoming for Lees McRae, which is a college at the bottom of the mountain, because a lot of the employees at Oz went to that college in the 70s when it was open. So it became a reunion at first so in the late 80s that's kind of where it started it was just it was their homecoming weekend and they wanted to capitalize on the original aussies being there and that's just it snowballed from there we moved it to september because the weather in october up there is so there was one year where i was scarecrow and there was a like an ice storm Mm. and you know and it was the first week of october so after um a couple years of that we decided to move it to september and the weather is a lot better at that at that time of year, but the leaves are still changing. Now, I want to go back and talk about some of the missteps that happened early on uh, in terms of it opening and uh, building an audience, trying to expand. And it did well when it first opened. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. It was uh, the top tourist attraction on the East Coast. And then the major fire happened. Can you talk about that for a moment? 
Yeah, of course. Um, so the fire happened in December of 1975. And in February of 1975, Carolina Caribbean, who had built the park and developed the park in Beach Mountain, went bankrupt. So they were kind of going through the motions through the 1975 season. A few other of their properties either caught fire or there was, they had a, um, like they had a resort in St. Croix and a couple of American tourists were actually murdered on the golf course. So that immediately got shut down. That was no longer. So it was just an accumulation of things that happened. And then somehow magically in December of 1975, the Emerald City caught fire and burnt down the main building that had all the offices, all of the costumes, all the audio sound equipment, um, and one of the gift shops that were attached to that main building. And then the museum that had all the movie costumes and that was ransacked. So they had Judy Garland's dress, they had the gatekeeper costume, they had a bunch of Frank Morgan's costumes in general, a bunch of Munchkin costumes. They came back from the MGM auction with a semi-truck filled with costumes and props from the film. And um, the museum was ransacked. None of that stuff's been recovered. We still, they still have a few things in their archives. Um, but that, I mean, that was that. The fire happened. They thought it was going to close and that was it. And that was only five years after they opened. You know, and there were other things, there were factors in it too, tourism and between 73 and 75 were on the, um, the downfall because of the gas crisis mm -hmm. in the 70s. And as you said, Beach Mountain is not the most easily accessible place for people to travel to. Especially when there's no monorail. Right. And the only way to get up there <laughs> is, you know, driving. So that was one of the issues too. And one of the investors actually bought the park at that time but or in 1976 early 1976 decided to reopen it um and they were determined to reopen it by 19 by june of 1976 and they had to rebuild in emerald city and they did it in about four months but it was a lesser version they did not bring any of the original creative team back which nobody understands to this day and so the costumes and the format of the park changed quite a bit and the quality of the park. Is, went down. is that at the point where it went more towards the MGM movie? Oh, that's when they use uh, um, the, the actors' faces and they, I, yes, they started to lean a little bit more towards MGM. Now, sure. Again, because of copyright and everything, um, and you can fill in the blanks for me. Uh, obviously, you're going to know this better than I do. Uh, but uh, as far as the music from the movie and everything, um, they were licensed, I think, to use, and this is what I've heard, so I may be wrong mm -hmm. on this, uh, only Over the Rainbow, but a version of Over the Rainbow, which, of course, was not Judy Garland's version. When did that begin to shift and change? So they always... From day one, they always had Over the Rainbow. Lunas McGlohan, who worked with Alec Wilder, and Lunas was based in Charlotte, and he's a composer and a lyricist. And um, he insisted from the beginning that th he was fine with writing original songs for the park and actually loved doing so. But he said that The Wizard of Oz is not The Wizard of Oz without Over the Rainbow. So they were able to license the use of Over the Rainbow for the entire run of uh, when they were in operation. And they had this woman, Linda Perez, based out of Charlotte, and she sang it. And her version of the song is gorgeous. Is gorgeous. Um, but everything else in the park was all original music. They couldn't even use 
the phrase Ruby Slippers because that was copyrighted by MGM. Correct. The Dorothy did walk around in red shoes. They were, uh, you know, they started off as like pumps or whatever the first mm-hmm. year. Mary Jane shoes. I don't know what they're mm-hmm. called. Um, but by the last season, they were kids because the girls' feet just, you know, they're walking up and down the old road all day. It's a lot, but they were not. Everybody called them ruby slippers. It didn't matter. You know, it's just like in everybody's psyche, but on the merchandise and stuff, they were referred to as the magic shoes. Now, the original Yellow Brick Road, that was, how long was the Yellow Brick Road? And a lot of the bricks were stolen at one time as well. Yeah, so the Yellow Brick Road, it, it's pretty much all still, it, it's all still there except for a small chunk of it, but it was 44,000 bricks and it's three quarters of a mile long. And it's funny, a lot of people when the park was kind of left to its own devices between 1980 and 1983, it became a like a fraternity hazing thing for people yes. to go up and find bricks and all that stuff. So they the Yellow Brick Road is missing a lot of original bricks. As we've been doing the park cleanup too, though, people would just take the bricks out of the road and like throw them at things. So we're finding original yellow bricks from the 70s, like throughout the entire park as we're really going in and like gutting the the landscaping. And it's been really interesting because a lot of stuff starting to expose itself because they just left everything out after they closed. So we're finding like original makeup sticks from the characters and like their character stations and (laughs) pieces of the, they have these huge styrofoam mushrooms that we're finding pieces of those everywhere. So it's been really interesting to find. We're finding beer cans and, soda bottles from the 70s we're like what is happening and then you talk to original employees and they're like yeah we used to sit off the back of the scarecrow stage and drink a beer and throw the beer michael thank you because i'm cleaning this up now but (laughs) you know they didn't think about it back then so i know there were many extenuating factors but what was the final decision that decided that uh the land of oz would just not cease to continue business uh Mm -hmm. that it would just shut down what was that deciding factor the park itself actually got to a place where it was in such disre- uh, disrepair that people just didn't want to go anymore. And the 19, after the 1980 season, the attendance was so low and they were only open for, I think, from the middle of June to the middle of August. It was the shortest season. Mm-hmm. And all the money that the park was making was going back into the ski resort and whatever ventures they wanted to do. They weren't adding new attractions. They weren't updating the costumes. The park was really, really run down. And they brought Jack Pentest back in to do an evaluation. And he thought, for him, it's actually kind of heartbreaking because he went in and when the park first opened, when he was overseeing it, it was a Disneyland quality experience. For 1980, it looked like worse than the, like the lowest middle school production of The Wizard of Oz, you know? Mm-hmm. And for him to go through and see it, he came up with all these concepts to add attractions between 1980 and 1987 every year, but just to get it up and going, they would either have to close for a year and put out X amount of dollars, but altogether it was about $3.5 million. Wow. He estimated it would have to go into revitalizing the park. And they were like, we're good, thanks, goodbye. And they just thought it easier to close the park than to try to go back in and renovate it. So in the mid to late 80s, um, the property became uh, or they were going to go in the direction of condominiums and mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, what would be the attraction? I mean, I, I mean, it's a beautiful area. Let's just start there. But beyond that, to 
buy a condominium in this area um, if none of the other attractions were really up and running at that point? Well, it's it's a ski town, so it would be for for skiers, and it's just the views, or if you want to retire and go up there. And you know, when the park um, closed, it fell back into the original landowners' hands who had leased it to Carolina Caribbean to develop the park. And those people are my bosses now. They've had the park back in their possession since the mid '80s, but they were in real estate and they didn't know what to do with a theme park that nobody wanted to go to. It was so vandalized and so worn down. Like the um, the on-site reports from 1980 are like really crazy to read because in the restaurant, like the ceiling was caving in from mildew and stuff. And that was when the park was open. Wow. You know, and so they just were like, we're gonna, you know, they joined forces with another entity and they're like, okay, we're gonna demolish the, the park and build houses and build this gated community. And they started to do that. And, it, you know, it's not that they didn't see the value in the Land of Oz, but they didn't know what else to do with it. And it was by that point, it was 1986, 1985, 1986. And they started to knock down Emerald City and they took down the balloon ride and got rid of the character houses because they were in such uh, disrepair. And then somewhere the, the deal kind of fell through. So the rest of the park ended up being saved and they built houses around the park. And that's kind of how it is now. So the park is still there from the beginning and into Kansas until you get to the end of the Emerald, where the Emerald City was supposed to be. And you come out and there's just an empty, empty field where the Emerald City was. But, you know, we're just happy that we have as much of the park as we do because it was supposed to be completely demolished. The Yellow Brick Road should have been condos. Well, whose idea was it originally to start opening? Um, I know that it started out with one day a year. And for how many years did that happen? Uh, so the one day a year, it, I would say, because when I started, it was still one day a year. So I would say for the first And how long years, did you start them? I started um, working there in 2001. Okay. So I think about 2003 was when they started, or 2004, they started doing the two days. Um, and it might've been a little bit later, but they started opening it one day a year because people kept calling because they wanted to go back to visit. And so uh, there, uh, there was a 4th of July in 1991 and they were like, oh, we'll see what happens. They had a couple thousand people show up and they were not expecting it because they, they just didn't know that they, it was going to have that kind of reaction. And so they kind of, they took a year off and they're like, okay, we have something here. And then they started Autumn and Oz and 1993. Now, when those first people came for that first day, were I, I'm sure there was a lot of nostalgia. Um, like myself, many of them may have gone there as a child themselves. Um, were they excited just to be on the property again and, and where it all took place? Or was there any type of blowback or anything because it wasn't what it used to be? I don't think there was any kind of negative feedback from it. I think people were just generally excited. I mean, they knew it became an urban legend. It became a myth about this place and that it was just, you know, not there any longer. And everybody who was returning, I'm sure there, there might've been some that were like, it's not what it was back in the day, but mm-hmm. we still, we still get that now. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, well, how long like, were you with uh, the land of Oz before you were brought on as the artistic director? So I came on as the artistic director in 2017, 16, 2016, I think. So you'd so, already been there almost 15 years at that point. Yeah, I've been, I don't, it's weird to think about, but yeah, I've been, because I started so young 
working there, it all kind of just like happened very early on in my in my life. So through the evolution of the Land of Oz coming back, if you will, um, what were you able to bring to the table? Uh, and what were your goals and aspirations for the Land of Oz? I Goals and aspirations, I don't really know. I just know I had like all these ideas that I kept throwing out. And the first year, my bosses were like, whoa, because they were used to it being the two-day event. And, you know, it wasn't anything. Every character had a different costume. Like, there were no performances. Sometimes you, there would be a Wicked Witch in Kansas just to get a character there to, you know, there was no storytelling happening. And everybody just kind of stood in line and took pictures with the characters, which was great. And it, and it worked for a very long time. And that's what helped build it up. But I wanted to add in shows. I wanted all of the characters to have matching costumes. I wanted um, to add a merchandise line and all this stuff, being the Oz collector that I was when I was a kid, I was like, okay, well, I want to, I want to make all the things that they won't sell right now. And so it's, that's kind of what we did. The biggest thing that we do now is um, we build an Emerald City from the ground up every year. And we added the Emerald City show back into the event, which is huge for me. And we've been doing, um, the owners have been really wonderful because they've been doing like, hundreds of thousands of dollars if not close to this point a million dollars at renovations so all the money that we make from the event goes directly back into the park and because of that like we're, we're able to do this deep landscaping cleanup and making it look like pristine and we redo the yellow repaint the yellow brick road every year or this year we restored all of the original murals in the tornado and we restored the last remaining balloon from the balloon ride which you know they were all deteriorating and we've mm -hmm. renovated the the main building that's left is the barn in Dorothy's house and obviously Dorothy's house is the walkthrough experience the barn has been um, renovated into like our green room and our wardrobe room and all of that and um, the park itself sits on one of the highest points on the east coast and so we built a staircase and a viewing deck up on the you know to see the view up there and stuff so they're putting all their the money back into the park and it's really great because we've had cast members from the opening year come back and they said that this is the closest that it's felt like to those first couple years since the park opened well congratulations and, on that that's wonderful thank you yeah it's actually it's it's really um it's cool it's been really awesome to see the progress and to you know we go I joke because half the time from year to year, we can't use photographs from two years prior because the park's changed so much since then. So it's just like- well, it's I great, I mean, for This historical aspect of it, do you think that it will grow beyond uh, uh, just the uh, uh, Ottoman uh, Oz festival? Do you have ideas for expanding beyond that? We always have. I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't know. We can, we can hope. Um, we did a, a small event in June to start like help. We used to up until 2019, it was called journey with Dorothy and she would walk you through and people in your group would get handed a, like a prop and a script and they would play the scarecrow Tim and a lion opposite of her. So it was like kind of this immersive interactive thing, mm -hmm. but people were going thinking that it was autumn and Oz and they were getting very upset that they weren't getting all the characters and they weren't getting the Emerald city and all of that stuff. So we kind of just, we, we stop that for a second. We do private tours sometimes to bring people through and they just get a, a tour guide with the history of the park. Um, we had ideas to do a 
Halloween event, but that's never come to fruition. But we have the concept and everything ready to go if we ever kind of hit that point. Um, what's hard for us is that because a lot of my staff or my creative team, none of them are local, or very few of them are very, not local. And are so, they much like a, a resort type of a group that come in just for, I mean, I grew up uh, just outside of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I worked mm -hmm. in an amusement park in the summer and a lot of employees would come for the summer and then they would go back to their own homes. Is it pretty much the same situation there? It's that, but that's cr like, that's crammed into three to five weeks. So it's, you know, it's a lot. And by the end of autumn, like, I joke, but it's true. I come back at the end of each season and I'm like, I just want to be in my room and I want to be alone for three days. So the thought of going into another event right after Autumn and Oz is a little intimidating, but I'm sure at some point we'll figure it out and we'll, we'll do it. Now, with the work that you do, I mean, uh, is is it 24-7 pretty much, you know, year-round now planning for that those uh, few days that people can come and enjoy this? Yep. Yeah, no, it, it has. It's it's turned into that. I mean, I, I do get time off and stuff. And what's great is that I'm able to kind of figure out my own schedule and everything. But it's grown so quickly over the past few years that I today I'm like I was working on um, with one of our product vendors for new merchandise for next season already. You know, so it's just it's kind of a never not never ending, but it's just a continual continual thing i'm people are already emailing asking for information on next year and if they can get a tour of the park uh, for their new station for next season and that kind of a thing so it it doesn't stop well <laughs> i'm very thankful for it you know, every year there's the judy garland festival there are the baum festivals there are all these other festivals that come on um uh have you had an Oz festival where you've had many of the Oz uh, fan clubs and everything able to come and be a part of this? Yeah, they, uh, a lot of people come. Uh, the International Wizard of Oz Club came every year up until this year, and we always, like I always support them, so we were handing out their flyers and stuff during the event, and we do. We get all the whole, whole crew comes in. A lot of the people that are the characters and stuff are a lot of really good friends of mine from over the years that were collectors that I met at the other festivals or I met at the conventions and stuff. So there's a lot of the Oz um, uh, fandom that are involved with, with the park. And it's actually really wonderful that everybody comes together for it. Now, with your involvement as the artistic director of uh, the Land of Oz, uh, moving beyond that, um, are you able to pursue other aspects of your career or is this really pretty much where you're, uh, you're uh, uh, stuck in Oz at 9 a.m. and trying to get home? So <laughs> That's a good question. That's actually the best way to put it too. Sometimes, yeah. you know, it's like, it's anything. There's, there's ups and downs and there was a point up until COVID where I would come back and I'd work on a show or I would direct a music video or I would do whatever I was able to do. And then COVID happened and then, you know, Oz sustained me through COVID, thankfully. In the past year and things are starting to pick up a little bit more now and you know who knows i mean i i have the time to jump back and forth in between things during the off season and you know i also have the opportunity to pick and choose a little bit more than when i was younger so we'll we'll see what happens now i look at some of your uh oz memorabilia behind you and i've got some of mine here as well uh <laughs> but uh what was your or is your holy grail item 
in terms of something that you would like to have either for yourself or for the land of Oz for other people to enjoy? We're going to go with myself. No, I'm just kidding. Um, for for Land of Oz, I you know it would be awesome if the dress was recovered. Or I think just in general, I think it would be awesome if the dress was recovered. At this point, if it ends up back in the park, so be it. But just to know that it still exists somewhere. So just to be able to find that. And the, there was the dress that was found last, um, last in year. In a shoebox. In yes. a shoebox in D.C. And what was interesting was the timing of when they acquired the dress and when the dress was stolen was so close. And so I worked with um, Helena Bottoms and we kind of distinguished based off of photos that their dress was different from Land of Oz's dress, but they were cut from the same bolt of fabric. Um, And it's the craziest thing. They were able, she, I don't know how, what made her think of this or how to figure it out, but she realize that the gingham, like there's the bias trim on the top of the dress and the gingham lines up differently on each dress. And so we compared photos of their dress to the park's dress um, and the gingham, they're opposite. So the fabric was um, cut at the same time and then flipped and then made. So they have the counterpart. It's so crazy that I'm talking about this. No, but <laughs> I, I, no, I'm fascinated by this. So this is all great. Yeah, so it's it that was a really interesting process and or just even to find out because she taught me something and I've been studying these costumes for forever. Um, but I think it'd be awesome for the part to find that dress again. For me personally, I don't really know because my two biggest things were a first edition of The Wizard of Oz and um a 1939 ideal Dorothy doll, like the first Dorothy doll they ever made. Mm. And I got both of those recently. I guess, I, you know what I'll say? I'll say um, uh, Frank Baum's autograph would be really, really awesome to acquire one day. Now, I know because it's the land of Oz that it is Oz-centric. But this year, of course, is the 100th uh, anniversary of Judy Garland's birth. Uh, did you do any Judy Garland events uh, that were specific to her? I, at Land of Oz or in life? In the land of Oz. Or oh, in life, I know <laughs> Yeah, well, I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. No, um, so I was fortunate enough to where I was able to go out to LA for the um, the fragrance launch that they celebrated on her, her birthday. And Sonato, so, so who's yes. been on the show, so yes. Yeah, so that was, that was such a beautiful event to go to because the, it was just a bunch of people in the place that she was discovered, surrounded by her costumes that Scott Headley put together, that gorgeous exhibit. And Scott they just want... Yeah, and they, um, everybody just wanted to have a cocktail and talk about how much they love Judy Garland. And that's all it was. And it was just, it was such a great thing to sit there and be a part of. And I, I uh, traveled with um, one of my Dorothys as well because she was invited. And it was just great to like experience that with everybody who went out. Um, at the park, unfortunately, we didn't do anything specific for judy um this year i was trying to figure out if i could get scott down there to do a display with his costumes and all of that but nothing was seeming to work out and next year is our 30th anniversary of autumn and oz so it's like we can take a break from an anniversary type of deal for a year and well let's talk uh, maybe i'll get there you know so you gotta come <laughs> i would love i'd love to <laughs> i'd love to do something there um so 
I am actually going to do a giveaway. I went to your Oz store today, and I love your total established 1900 t-shirt. So I'm going to give it away to someone tonight. And the word of the day that I chose is efficiency. So all you need to do is comment with the word efficiency um, or ask a question of Sean uh, using the word efficiency. Uh, and uh, this will be uh, our giveaway for tonight. Um, just as a, a wind down, as I do uh, in my shows, I just have some random questions just for the fun of it. Uh, it. They may or may not be awe-centric and they may seem a little odd. So uh, let's just go uh, down this journey and see where it takes us. All right, and I'm ready for you. question is, what's the best compliment that you've ever received? And I'm gonna make this specific to the land of Oz. What's the best compliment that you've received for the work that you've done on behalf of the land of Oz? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think what's, here's what I'll say, is that when you get grown men that get onto the Yellowbrook Road and they start tearing up and all they wanna do is skip, you know you're doing something right. And there's so many stories like that. And every year, like just meet, like just between the staff and meeting all these people that come to visit the park and they just have this love for Oz and they're so thankful to be there. And they just, we get people that, you know, it's, they're, they're sick and all they want to do is be on the Elbert Road. And I think to be part of something that means so much to so many people, I, you can't get a bigger compliment than that. The people just want to go and be a part of it and to live it. And I just, I'm very honored that I am able to bring that to people. God bless you. That's really wonderful. Um, next, uh, uh, share something vulnerable with someone you care about to deepen your connection. You and I barely know each other. Uh, but uh, I, instead of sharing something vulnerable, uh, your favorite memory of either uh, growing up watching The Wizard of Oz, uh, an event surrounding The Wizard of Oz, or an event at the Land of Oz, your favorite memory? Ooh, I mean, there's, like I said, Oz has been a huge part of my life for a very, very long time. I think for me, I, it's the one thing that I remember of my parents still being married. Mm. To be honest, we would sit down and we watch the movie and look, they, they got divorced and it's okay. Like, it's fine. As an adult, you look back and you're kind of like, well, how, how did they make it work for as long as they did type of deal. And it wasn't a bad divorce on for me on my end. They live very close to each other. But it was the one thing that, like, everybody, we were all in the house, and everybody would just have to watch The Wizard of Oz and repeat with me because I took control of the TV as five-year-old, and <laughs> that's what they were watching. And so I think that's kind of one of my fonder memories of The Wizard of Oz. Me, early it's my on. grandparents. I, I think of my grandparents and being with my grandparents when they were still alive and sitting and watching it with them. So... I always think of my grandparents when they're on. And I still, at the very end, when she's saying goodbye, I cry like a baby because it takes me back to those moments. Uh, so it's amazing. So I've got this card. It's called It's Not Okay. Oh, we're no. going to make it okay. okay. <laughs> it says, when someone is apologizing you, to you, don't say it's okay. Instead, say thank you. Just don't do that again. Um, so the emphasis that a mistake has been made and that it's not okay, this trick will make uh, the offender uh, less likely to repeat the wrongdoing. So I don't believe there are mistakes. I think there are lessons. Um, what is a big life lesson that you had to experience uh, as the artistic director of the Land of Oz? And what got you through that? Um, oh, a life lesson. Okay. Jeez, that's, that's good. 
That's good. I think you might have stumped me a little bit with that. I think the biggest thing is just, you know, as um, the artistic director and executive producing it, I've had to learn how to create budgets and maintain a budget and do all that. And sometimes you go over budget and you get yelled at and you have to kind of just be like, yes, I'm, I'm sorry, we went over budget and that kind of a thing. And I think it's just learning how to um, honestly just handle criticism, screw the budget thing, just handling criticism from people because you can't please them all. And everybody's like, you can sit there and you can add all of this great stuff to the event. And people are like, well, where's this? And why aren't you doing this? And why isn't this happening? And why, like, why, why don't you have more munchkins? I'm like, oh my God. You know, so it's just kind of, you take it with a grain of salt and you, you listen to everybody's critiques and you kind of are like, yes, you are correct. That could be better or no, it's not going to happen. You know, so I think that's just, that's been really interesting to work through. And also not everybody's going to like you, you know, when that's true. You know, you learn that uh, early on in life. Um, I've got a question from one of our viewers, Barbara George. Thank you for being here, Barbara. I love you very much. Uh, it says, of all the characters, who do you identify with the most? Um, it depends on the day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Um, but I will say, I um, ever since I was a little kid, it was always Dorothy. Mm -hmm. I think, like, men, it, when a man's asked that question, it's always like the lion or the tin man. It's Dorothy. Like it's Dorothy, just Dorothy. It's Dorothy. It's Dorothy. Yeah. It's, it's Dorothy. Just, it's her. It's Dorothy, right there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's Dorothy. Okay. What was um, the hardest, or uh, what was the hardest secret that you've ever had to keep? And it could be related <laughs> in uh, well. Uh, in a, a secret related to the land of Oz, let's keep everything specific. Okay, yeah, let's let's keep everything like PG. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I probably Lord the biggest secret. I think it was mm, probably it was the transition from um, when I first got hired. Because it was, and it wasn't like a bad thing or anything. It was just kind of like, I couldn't like shout it from the rooftops out of excitement. Mm -hmm. I like kind of, I had to hold it in until they, it was announced. Um, but I think I would say that, you know, everything else with Lynn, here's the thing too, for me, I'm an open book in general as a person. So I just... Mm -hmm spit everything out anyway. Yeah, that's me too. Uh, we have another uh, question, Brad Salins. Uh, thank you for being here, Brad. Um, what was the most memorable find that excited you the most when it was discovered? Uh, from the park? or uh, I, I'm, uh, uh, What was the Oz memorabilia find that excited you the most when it was discovered? Um, I think for me it was, for, for my personal collections, when I found the first edition of The Wizard of Oz on Facebook Marketplace, for a hundred dollars, ten minutes from where my dad lived. <laughs> Did you just go and pick it up? I literally, I was the first person to message the woman. I was like, "My dad will be there in a half an hour," and I call my dad. I go, "I don't care what you are doing right now. You are going to Keyport, New Jersey, and you are picking up this book." Ah, <laughs> good for you. So he did. He did. <laughs> um, how do you keep boundaries in your personal life with uh, your professional life? I don't think I have any. Um, it's, well, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm joking. I, I just, you know, it, it's hard sometimes. I, as I get older, I'm like, okay, 
you at this time of day, like you are stopping working, you are not working through 11 o'clock at night to finish something. You can wake up tomorrow and finish it. It's not going to like make or break anything because I, you know, I come from a family of workhorses where it just, it's kind of in my DNA to where I don't stop until I finish something. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of had to train myself to be like, it's okay to stop and you can pick it up tomorrow and you don't have to like rip your hair out right now and that kind of a thing. So I got a little bit better at at that this year while we were producing the event. Not much better, but that's kind of... That's great because that's the hardest thing for me as well. Um, what do you think is the clearest definition of success that you have experienced as the artistic director of the land of Oz? Um, cool. These questions, Richard, <laughs> these are good. Um, the clearest definition of success, I just, I mean, I think it's when you have, hmm, sorry, you like, you're getting me. This year, the son of Jack Pentis walked, came to the park and he was there every and it was the first time that he had gone to the event ever and so I was walking through with him and before we got into Kansas he was tearing up and he was um, getting emotional at certain parts and he he was there every day for the entire run of the event and for me that spoke volumes because like it's that's his dad's it's his dad's it's not like anybody else's it's literally his dad's and I think to get that kind of reaction and to get the support from him and to get the, su- the support from the families of the people who built the park, to me, that's kind of, that has always spoken volumes to me because for them, it was so near and dear to them, especially in the beginning for, you know, these people, the, the original creatives were only a part of the park from 1970 to 1975 when the fire happened. And after that, they never went back because they got booted, but they all they their families still talk about it they all their families still come back they they've spread their ashes there like it's just this huge it's this huge thing so to get the support from the families of these people is just to me that's the most successful thing that i could have gotten out of this whole experience running land of oz that's great that's wonderful um what is the best manifestation of success that you feel that you have actually created in your own life I mean, at this, I would say the park, you know, my work on the, on the park and the fact that it's grown so much and, you know, we have a full merchandise line that it's only like a, only a third is what's on the website right now. Yes. Check it out, everyone. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk about that in a few moments. Uh, What turned out to be the most useful course that you ever took that has helped you in your career? You know, it's funny. I think um, college was really interesting because I went to a uh, film and TV school. I went to school of visual arts and stuff. And during that, you kind of learn isms and or you learn kind of what to do, but you don't really learn until you're thrown into it in the industry. And I feel like that experience is almost more important than some of the stuff I learned in college, which maybe I should or should not say. But for me, working on Silence, the musical, like the stuff I learned in that show, I learned how to do wigs because the wardrobe supervisor is like, I don't want to do the wigs and I needed more money. You know, I wanted to make more money every week. So I was like, I'll do the wigs. So I learned how to do the wigs. And then, you know, when I was going down as the characters for the park, I didn't like 
the costumes they were using. So I started making my own costumes and then, you know, just you kind of learn these little traits and stuff. And I did stage crew for shows or I was a PA or I did, I kind of had put my hands in all these little areas of what creates uh, mm -hmm. production. And I think that's kind of the most, that, to me, that's been the most important tool because I, I learned so much doing that and I've carried it over into producing stuff for my love. That's wonderful. Uh, what is the biggest truth that you feel that you've ever experienced in your career? Biggest truth? What do you mean? Yes. Something that you learned about yourself from the work that you do. Um, that I... And maybe you've answered it. I, maybe I, I also think, too, that I, I've learned to trust my gut a little bit more when it comes to how to do things because you can sit there and you can have people that don't agree with you or they think that you're crazy or that you're like obsessed, which maybe to a point I am, but you know, it just, it's maneuvering through that and learning that you are, that I was capable of doing all of this and still am. And, you know, that's just, just believe to go to Glenda in the ways. It's like just believing in yourself. Absolutely. Um, and this is a, an off, uh, we know that uh, Dorothy lands in Oz and uh, she commits uh murder very early on uh not once but twice um what true crime have you been most tempted to commit in your own life i i'm a baby and i'm a scaredy cat like there's literally like <laughs> good answer there's nothing um, so i think i already know the answer to this but time goes on we all grow older uh at least you know and I, things have changed for me would you consider yourself a minimalist or a collector at this point in your life? I'm trying to be a minimalist collector, to be honest. So, and I know that sounds absurd, but I had so much Wizard of Oz stuff and over the years I've purged so much of it and I've had to give myself strict guidelines and everything um, about what I can buy, what I can't buy and all of that. So I'll go with minimalist collector as I'm continually purging a lot of the stuff that I have. Now, as I said, the word of the day is efficiency. What does efficiency mean to you when it comes to your work? Um, just be on top of your stuff. Like, just make sure that, you know, for me, I create like a checklist to be efficient, to make sure that I am hitting all the marks and making sure I'm on top of things and all the right emails are going out and all the certain projects are getting done and that kind of a thing, so... Great. And this is uh, going to be my last question tonight. And I don't want you to mention any names or situations because my show is about celebrating. Uh, but the question is, what is the biggest injustice that you feel that you've suffered in your career? And I ask this question because I want to know what got you through it. You know, I don't know if I've ever taken anything as an injustice, because especially in this industry, you can't like control why somebody gets hired, why somebody gets cast, why somebody gets picked for something else. There's a million different reasons and there are a million different projects with a million different personalities that you're a part of. And there's so many factors in all of it. So I think for me, I don't think I've had anything where I'm like, well, that definitely should have been me. That's unfair. Um, I think it's a growing experience in terms of learning how to deal with rejection and to just kind of figure out how to remaneuver yourself and how to, you know, everybody has lows in their career. Like I, there was some, a show that I was going after for the longest time and I was almost there getting it. And then I lost it. 
and it sucked. But then I created another project that kind of paid homage to that and kind of put me in another direction and another trajectory and that kind of a thing. So I think it's kind of figuring out how to pick up pieces and put them back together in just a little bit of a different way and just kind of keep pushing forward. Good answer. So uh, I am going to uh, give away a T-shirt tonight. Thank you all for being here. Uh, don't go anywhere for a moment, Sean. Uh, I'm going to have my final words, and uh, let's see who our winner is. Barbara George. Barbara George. Oh, Barbara. Uh, Barbara, you got my number. Give me a call in about an hour and a half uh, after the show. So uh, we'll uh, and we'll talk, and I'll get you that T-shirt. Uh, so I want to first of all thank you for finally getting here it took you a while because but you're Sorry. a busy busy man so i want to thank you for being here barbara when you get that t-shirt i want a selfie uh so and then tag both of us in the land of oz so we can uh let people know about this um sean i'm going to say my final uh remarks of the evening and then i'm going to leave the screen and i'm going to give you the final word uh, anything you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, anything we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with tonight, even if it's there's no place like home. Uh, when you say goodbye, uh, the final credits will roll. So I want to thank you for being here. Uh, efficiency. Uh, efficiency, uh, as Sean said, and I totally agree, is just being on top of your stuff, knowing what you bring to the table and what you're able to do. And I feel that if each and every one of us would focus on our own efficiency, instead of worrying about whether this person's going to complete their job or not, then perhaps things will get done in a more efficient manner. Um, I want to thank you all for being here tonight. It means the world to me. Uh, I know I can speak for Sean when I say this. In our business, when people show up, we don't take it for granted. So thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, if it was your first time here, I hope that you will consider checking out some of the other interviews that I've done and that you will consider subscribing to Richard Skipper Celebrates. My goal, my mission is to celebrate artists and their body of worth. So I hope that you'll do that. And for everybody that's here tonight, uh, you would really help me out tremendously if after tonight's show, you will leave a comment on YouTube and share this with your friends. Uh, make a commitment to tell at least two people about tonight's show. Uh, you can even go to the Land of Oz uh, website and go to the merchandise store and buy two items. Keep one for yourself and send one to the second person on your friends list. Uh, as I always say at the end of every show, go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the second name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. As my dear friend Sean Moniger always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And you never know what someone else is going through right now. But I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. And before I leave, I just want to say, you're the best friends anybody ever had. And it's funny, but I feel as if I've known you all the time. But I couldn't have, could I, Sean? It's all yours. Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to me talk about Land of Oz today. Autumn and Oz is every September for three weeks, so we would love to have you there. As Richard said, our website's landofoznc.com, and so are our social media, um, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. And so we hope to see you over the rainbow sometime soon. Thank you again.